If you'll please turn to John chapter 4, we'll read verses 5 through 26. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews said that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. You know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thank you, Grayson, for that reading. And I apologize. I think I got some slides mixed up there, so hopefully that didn't confuse anybody. Uh, but uh, we appreciate everyone being here today, and I hope that the things that I had to say can be helpful to you in some way. As we consider this encounter at Jacob's well between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, there are so many uh, things we can learn from this. It's, it's a story that's rich with lessons. There are a dozen sermons just sitting on the surface. I want to focus in this morning and kind of hone in a little bit on what he talks about in the latter part of this passage, and that is the true worshipers worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And what that exactly means, um, about a year ago, I gave a sermon about excellence in worship, and I touched very briefly in that sermon on the things that I really want to drill down into this morning. And what exactly does Jesus mean when he talks to this woman about in spirit and in truth? What does it mean? For most of my life, I have been taught, and I have taught, that when Jesus says in spirit and truth, he means this. 
In spirit means the proper attitude, sincerity, and pure motives. And in truth means doctrinal purity, according to God's word, not taking away from that, not adding to it. Now, I want to make it very clear before we even get started this morning that I believe that these things are necessary parts of our worship. I believe that God does expect and demand a proper attitude, a sincere heart, and pure motives when we worship. I believe God does expect and demand doctrinal purity, and that we worship according to the way that he's laid out in his word, and that there's no adding to, and there's no taking away from that. So let me say again, I believe this is a necessary part of our worship, and I want everybody to understand that I believe that. Can I get some head nods? Did everybody get that point? Okay. Having said that, um, as we consider what Jesus says to this woman to worship in spirit and truth, is it that simple? Is that what he's teaching her? And after studying this passage for years and also talking to some brothers in Christ about this who I have a high regard for and who I believe have a, a very deep knowledge of the scriptures, I have come to the conclusion that that is not what Jesus is trying to teach this woman at Jacob's well. And not that he's trying to teach her that from the heart and according to the word doesn't matter. What he's trying to teach her is simply deeper than that. Maybe not that simple, but really not complex either. As we consider sincerity and doctrinal purity, which, by the way, I believe is required for our worship, as we consider that, I want to think about a passage that we read in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, and why I held on to this, this understanding of in spirit and truth for so long. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, worship, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is, this is just a, a little snippet of a, of a conversation he's having with the Pharisees here. And it starts with the Pharisees approaching him about his disciples. And his disciples they basically, they ask, well, why, do your, why are your disciples not washing their hands before they eat bread? Uh, then talk about a hot-button topic, <laughs> the washing of hands. And of course, you know, you would look at that and say, well, that is kind of gross. Why weren't they washing their hands before they ate bread? But the point of the Pharisees approaching them about this was not a matter of cleanliness, at least in the sense of you really need to wash your hands before you eat. It's a good idea. It was the tradition that the Jewish nation had elevated up to almost the commandments of men. That was their tradition, and in their eyes, a law that you should follow, that you need to wash your hands before you eat. And so they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Well, he flips the question around to them, and he says, well, why do you transgress the law of God? You're accusing my disciples of breaking tradition, but you yourselves actually transgress the law of God. We don't have time this morning to get into what they were doing and how Jesus did that, but it turns, he then continues on to say this. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. That word vain means empty and useless. So their worship to God was empty and useless. Why? Because their heart was far from God and they were elevating as doctrine the commandments of men, their traditions. And so therefore, they weren't worshiping from the heart. They weren't worshiping according to the word of God. And it makes for a really great chart to contrast these two verses. So you start with what we look at as true worship in John chapter four, when Jesus said you have to worship in spirit and truth. 
In spirit means from the heart, and in truth means according to God's word. And then you contrast it with Matthew chapter 5, 8, and 9, where their heart was far from God, and they were elevating their own traditions as the commandments of men, as doctrine. And so it makes for a great chart. And what a silly reason to hold on to a belief in a, in, in a scripture based on the fact that it makes for a good chart. We should never, ever try to make God's word fit what we want it to be. It just makes a good chart. doesn't mean that I need to take John chapter 4 and take it out of context. Now, if you just look at this, maybe, maybe you could say, yeah, that's what that means. And again, I'm not saying that Jesus isn't saying that this isn't important. Because the fact is, is this stands on its own. When Jesus told the Pharisees, your worship is in vain, and it's vain because your heart is far from God, and it's because you're elevating as doctrine the commandments of men, I don't need John chapter 4 to contrast this to tell me that this is vain worship. And that true worship would instead be your heart is in it. Your heart is sincere and pure and is close to God. And you're looking at the commandments of God, not the commandments of men. This verse stands on its own. And so I don't have a problem using this chart. And I hope to be able to show that this morning. Let's think about for a few minutes worship through the ages that we see in the scriptures. And I hope you'll bear with me as as I go through a few examples this morning because I've got a reason for doing so that I think bears out that there is something different than what Jesus is talking about in John chapter four. The truth is God has always required and always demanded that his people worship him from the heart and according to the word. That's never been an option. Let's go to the patriarchal age and look at Cain and Abel. Briefly examine their worship. Obviously Abel's sacrifice to God was accepted. Cain's was rejected. Why? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 verse four says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. So God accepted Cain's worship, or excuse me, he accepted Abel's worship. It was a more excellent sacrifice than Cain's. Why? Because it was offered by faith. Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't have time this morning to get into a lesson on faith, but Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if Abel offered his sacrifice by faith and faith comes by hearing the word of God, then we can assume that God gave Cain and Abel commands to worship him in a certain way and Abel followed those commands. Isn't that what we can assume from that? Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Now we don't have a record of what God, how God told him to worship. Genesis chapter four doesn't say, God commanded Abel and Cain to offer this way, and Abel did it and Cain didn't do it. That's not what we have, but what we do have is God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Abel offered a sacrifice by faith, that means he offered it based on the word of God, what God told them to do. Cain, on the other hand, we read about him more in 1 John chapter three, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And here's the interesting thing about this verse. Verse 12. When he says his works were evil, he's not talking specifically about the act of murder, though that is an evil act. What he was saying, that was the, re- the reason he murdered his brother is because his works were evil. What does that tell you? His heart wasn't in it. His heart wasn't in a good place with God. 
And we, and we know that what he offered was different than what Abel offered. And so therefore his heart wasn't in it and he was doing the wrong thing, whatever that is. We understand that his works were evil and therefore God rejected his worship based on those things. Okay, well, what about under the next dispensation under the law of Moses? I love this passage in Isaiah chapter one because it gets really to the heart of having a pure heart and, and sincere attitude when we worship God. He says in verse number 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. The Lord was exacerbated. He was frustrated. He was annoyed. He'd had enough of their worship to him. Why? They weren't doing the wrong things, at least not in their worship. Multitude of sacrifices, burnt offerings, the fat of fed cattle, the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, new moons, Sabbaths, prayer, the sacred meeting. These were all things they were supposed to be doing. But God said, I'm sick of it. No more. Why are you trampling my courts? I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. They were living sinful lives. They were going through the motions. All, it was all about doing the things outwardly when inwardly they were, they were full of iniquity. Now, turn the coin over. Leviticus chapter 10, verses one through two. Nadab and Abihu, and by the way, there's dozens of examples we could have used this morning. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. What was their problem? Did they have a heart problem too? I don't know, maybe. The scriptures don't really tell us. We can make conjecture and speculation all day long. At the end of the day, they offered fire which he had not commanded them. They did something against God's word. They added to it or they changed it. They did something different than what he had commanded them. So we see under the law of Moses, not only does the heart matter, but also what we do matters or what they did matters. Now let's jump forward to the Christian age, the church. As Paul writes his first letter to the church at Corinth, He's instructing them about the Lord's table and the communion service. Listen to what he has to say to them there. Verse number 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So let's stop there just a second. He says, when you're coming together, when you're assembling together, it's really better if you hadn't come together at all. You're worse off for having assembled together. They're doing something wrong. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and, I part, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So he's saying, first of all, you've got a heart problem. 
you've got all these divisions and all these factions. And some people are being elevated in positions of prominence and they're being approved and recognized and some people are being neglected. First of all, you've got a heart problem. Second of all, verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry, another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So first of all, they had a heart problem. And second of all, they say, you're doing it completely wrong. You're having a common meal, a feast. And some people are going hungry and some people are going so far as to getting drunk. You're doing it wrong and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. All in one fell swoop. Of course, God has always, always, always demanded, expected, commanded us to worship him with a pure heart, with sincere motives, and according to what he's given us in his word, doctrinal purity. Now, there's a reason I went through all those time periods to show that. Because Jesus talks about a change to the woman at Jacob's well. He talks about a time of change coming. If in spirit and in truth actually means from the heart and according to the word, then what's the change Jesus is talking about? Let's go back to John chapter 4, read verses 19 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we're not to worship. Okay, so we're seeing here the delineation between these two cultures. Now, some of you know, but some of you may not know, the Samaritans, this area that he was in with this woman, the Samaritans were the descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel. When the kingdom divided after Solomon died, the kingdom was split. Judah was the southern kingdom, Israel the northern kingdom. The Samaritans were the descendants of that northern kingdom. And when Syria came in and destroyed them, some of those descendants survived and intermarried with the, the nations around there. And so the Jews looked upon the Samaritans, even though they had Jewish blood, they, they looked on them almost as, you know, pardon the phrase, a half-breed. They were, they were reviled by the Jews. And that's why the woman, when Jesus first approached her, says, can I have a drink of water? The woman's like, why are you even talking to me? much less asking me for a drink of water because there was this cultural divide that Jesus was crossing, this barrier that, that most Jews would have looked at and said, why are you talking to that woman? And so she says, hey, we worship in this mountain. So there was a mountain uh, near where they are, and I apologize, I don't have the name of that mountain off the top of my head, but there was a mountain near this city and there was a, some sort of tabernacle or temple where the Samaritans worshiped. And they held on to... The, basically what's called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Samaritans revered those books as scripture and basically ignored all the rest of the Old Testament. But they worshiped in their own fashion in this mountain. And so she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but the Jews say Jerusalem is the place to worship. Which is it? You know, she starts out with this attitude of, well, why are you even talking to me? And then as Jesus tells her about herself, she realizes there's something more to this man. So I want to know the truth of this. How am I supposed to worship? Jesus goes on in verse 21. He said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So he's telling her, listen, salvation is of the Jews. The Jews have it right. You're supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem. But here's what he tells her. 
Believe me, the hour is coming, and now is when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship. Notice that has nothing to do with attitude. It has nothing to do with, in essence, doctrinal purity. What he's saying is there's a change coming here. Right now, the Jews have it right, but there's a time coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem is going to be. Not that you can't worship in this mountain or that you can't worship in Jerusalem, but it's, that's not the requirement. That's not what it's about. So he goes on to say, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So remember, God has always required from the heart and according to the word. Whether it was the patriarchs, whether it was the children of Israel, whether it's in the church, God has always demanded and expected doctrinal purity and sincere worship. Jesus isn't saying that that's changing. If that's what in spirit and truth means, that means something else is changing, right? What is changing here? What's the change that's happening? Instead of the change in the nature of worship, it's a change in who can worship and where we can worship. The answer is not complicated, but it's not as simple as we first thought. In all in essence, the, the truth or the change that's coming is the fact that the law of Moses is ending and the church is about to begin. Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's about to establish the New Testament. That's the change that's coming. We're moving from a physical law to a spiritual kingdom of God. So let's go to Hebrews and spend a little time there. Hebrews chapter nine. And if you want to get a really deep dive into the the change or the differences between the, the law of Moses and the New Testament. Hebrews is a great place to spend a lot of time and, and study that on your own. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So, the priesthood that we are under, the high priesthood of Jesus. What does that look like compared with the law of Moses? Well, the law of Moses had the Levitical priests, you know, Aaron and his descendants, serving in the temple, making sacrifices in the tabernacle. You had the blood of goats and calves, burnt offerings, all those different physical things that were happening. But he talks about a spiritual priesthood, Jesus, as a high priest of good things to come, greater and more perfect tabernacle, what? Not made with hands. That is not of this creation. It's a spiritual tabernacle, not a physical building. Even though we're in a physical building this morning, this building isn't what we worship or even required for our worship. We could go out in the pasture out here and worship. It's not about the building. It's a spiritual tabernacle. Not with the blood of bulls and, or excuse me, goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. And it's not that Jesus gathered his own blood that he shed on the cross and went into, the, into some tabernacle, the holy place, and offered that blood like the priest did. No, it's symbolic of what he did. He shed his blood on the cross, and when he died, he went into the holy place. He went to the throne of God with his pure and precious blood and obtained eternal redemption for his people. 
physical versus spiritual. So that's when we talk about worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's a spiritual worship, not a physical worship. Think about all the things the nation of Israel had to do in their worship, all those sacrifices and all those ritual cleansings that they had to do, all the, the, the Sabbath and the, the Passover and all that, very physical in nature. And contrast that with what we do in the church today. In Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, we have an altar from which those things who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What does he say in there? We have an altar. It's not a physical altar. It's a spiritual altar. And those who serve in the tabernacle, those Jews that were still alive at that time and had the temple in Jerusalem and were still doing what the Jews did, says they don't have a right to eat at our table because they're doing something that's null and void now. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Now listen to what he says here. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Doesn't matter about Jerusalem anymore. Doesn't matter what city that you're in. The woman at Jacob's well. It doesn't matter about this mountain. Doesn't matter about Jerusalem. Wherever you are, whoever you are, you can worship God in spirit and in truth. We have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of what? Blood and burnt offerings? No. The sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, giving thanks to the one that paid the price for my sin. Do not forget to do good and to share, with the, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. It's a spiritual praise. It's a spiritual sacrifice. You know, we read in Romans chapter 12, verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. Not that the sacrifice we make, a living sacrifice, it's not that that is what is giving us our salvation. Rather, it is a response to the salvation that Jesus has provided for us. And yes, we do it sincerely. We do it from the heart, and we do it in the way that he's instructed us to do it. But it's a spiritual worship. So we understand the spirit part of what Jesus is telling us. Well, and what about the truth part? Back to Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But, those sacrifices, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So let's talk a little bit about shadows. We talk about shadows all the time in the Old Testament because... The New Testament, if you will, cast shadows back to the old law, to the law of Moses, to the things that were going on there. And you could do a whole sermon series on the shadows that we find in the Old Testament. So what does he mean when he talks about a shadow? The law having a shadow of the good things to come, but not the very image of the things. What does that mean? Those things can never, with the same sacrifice they offer continually, they can never make a man perfect. So that sacrifice that the, that the high priest is making every year, that can never do what Jesus has done for us because they offer it continually every year. 
Otherwise, why do they keep doing it? No, there's a remembrance of sins. And so therefore, they keep going back and they keep going back and they keep going back, but it can never do what the blood of Jesus can do. Why? Because it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow of the image. This morning when I got to the church building, I took this picture in the back here with the sun shining behind me. Now, if you don't know this is me, what can you ascertain by looking at this picture? Well, it's a bald man. You can tell that. Has no hair, either by choice or not by choice. We don't know for sure. He's got broad shoulders. Maybe he works out. Maybe he's got some muscle. He's kind of stout. Maybe he's, you know, got some muscle on him. Maybe he's kind of fit. We can't really tell because it's just a shadow. Alas, the very image of the thing is not what I've just talked about. I'm bald. Some of it I've lost. Some of it I'd cut short. I've got broad shoulders, but I come by it honestly. I don't work out. It's just the way I am. I don't have a lot of muscle. I'm big boned. You know, it just, it just, it is what it is. The very image of the thing is a disappointment compared to the shadow. The great thing about the shadows we find in the Old Testament, the very image of the thing is so much better. So much better than the shadow. It's the true thing. It's the truth in in spirit and in truth. We worship God spiritually and we worship him truly. It's not just a shadow, it's the truth. Jesus told the woman, she said, hey, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said, it's me, I'm him. I'm the one that's talking to you. I'm the Messiah, I'm the true, the very image of the thing, not just the shadow. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 35. This is another thing about worshiping in spirit and truth that we've touched upon. Peter opened his mouth and said, in the truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Peter was preaching in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and God had given him the vision of the, the big sheep being let down on all the animals in there and telling Peter, go you know, rise, kill, and eat. Even the unclean, Peter's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. God said, what well, I've made clean, you don't call it unclean. And so Peter understands after going to his house and hearing his story and realizing that, hey, God's giving me a message here. I'm perceiving anyone who wants to worship God can. If they fear him and they work righteousness, if they worship him in spirit and in truth, anybody can worship God. And that was the message Jesus was giving to that woman at the well. It doesn't matter that you're a Samaritan. It doesn't matter that your forefathers were destroyed by Assyria and and intermarried with all these foreign nations. It doesn't matter that the Jews look on you with disgust. You can worship God the way he truly wants to be worshiped. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money your family has. If you worship God in spirit and in truth, then you can be his child. Peter said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we? The Jews had a hard time with that concept. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. It kept coming back to these Gentiles and what they should or shouldn't do according to Jewish law. But to worship God in spirit and in truth, it doesn't mean you need to be a Jew. You can be anyone. 
In Philippians chapter three, verse three, Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Worshiping God, worshiping Christ in the spirit and in the truth is all about rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us. Rejoicing in the salvation that he's brought. Rejoicing in the fact that he did what we couldn't do. We do those things sincerely and from the heart because that's the way he wants us to do it. We do those things according to his word. The instruction that we find in the New Testament about how to worship and what goes on in the assembly. A lot of things in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and places like that that tell us how to worship and what to do. But we need to understand we don't do those things because worshiping correctly is what saves us. We worship God correctly because he's already saved us. And we rejoice in that salvation. And we have no confidence in the flesh, not in physical things, but in spiritual things. And that's what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. I don't know where you stand this morning with God. That's a matter of your heart and your conscience. I know that no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be a worshiper, a true worshiper of God today. If you've not responded to the gospel, if you've not been buried with Jesus Christ in baptism, repenting of your sins and confessing him as the son of God, there's no more important decision you can ever make in your life. And this morning, we beg you, we plead with you, if you have not made that decision, don't wait another day. Take those steps today and have your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Become a true worshiper of God, someone who worships God in spirit and in truth. If you need the prayers of this congregation for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.